Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. My name is James Patrick Herman. I'm a contributor to Variety, and this evening, it's my pleasure to welcome singer-songwriter Rain Phoenix. wanted to start off by talking about these videos. I think one of the really special things is that all of the directors uh, were friends of River. Tell me like how that worked out. Yeah, okay, so before we do that, I just want to um, say that talking about myself is not my favorite thing to do, but I'm also really grateful for the opportunity to speak about this record and my music. And so for me, it would, help, can, it would help make me feel better about this if I could very quickly um, think about all the, the uh, effort it took for you to come and to write the questions for SAG-AFTRA to include me tonight. And for all of you in the audience, that, you know, all the effort it took for you to drive here, the dinner that you may or may not have skipped to be here. Um, and just add all that, that goodness to this conversation. I'll feel much better spending some time talking about me because. <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your question in regard to the videos, yes, it, it was very intentional on my part to include River's Friends um, in making the moving images to go with the songs um, for this record, River. And it very, very easily lined up. I didn't know exactly who or what or when, but I just knew that I wanted to do the body of work to have, have it be related to him somehow and include his friends in what was already proving to me to be a very healing and cathartic experience. Talk to me a little bit about the visual concepts for these videos. Did you want to contribute to that uh, or did you want the directors to have their own vision yeah, I, I, um, in regard to, I'll just break it down one at a time so I can tell you how it kind of came to be, but in regard to the um, Time is the Killer video with Michael Stipe, I contacted him and said, oh, I was thinking I should make a video for this, and he said, sure, I'd be happy to be involved. I'm, I see us in black and white around a really expensive mic. <laughs> a very expensive mic in a studio. That's what I see. So that is... <laughs> That was, the, that was the inspiration for that video. And then um, Bradley Gregg, who is a good friend of Rivers, he's here tonight actually, um, he recommended that we do a, a, a color moment dancing in the street together. 
And so that was also incorporated into it. Um, and Bobby Bukowski, who shot it and directed it as well, he's a really good friend of Rivers and, and Michael Stipes. And so we all made that video. Uh, we rented a studio for five hours in Brooklyn, New York. I flew there to meet Michael. They put up their most expensive mic. And he put like um, Charlie Plummer, who's an actor, a young actor, he was the gaffer, so we included him as in crew, and he put his chapstick on the divider glass to make that really sort of strange-looking, washy um, visual on my face and Michael's when it kind of smears between shots. So that was Bobby's idea, and we literally made it in under five hours uh, for about the price of a plane ticket and the rental of the space which was really actually quite cheap, so. Don't tell anyone our secrets. Oh wait, this is on TV. <laughs> and talk to me a little bit about the, the other two videos. Yeah, so that was that one. What, what played second? It was Time is the Killer, and then um, I'm guessing it was Emily, yeah. Oh yeah, you would know. Um, so Emily, it was, I asked Gus about making a video and he was, um, he basically said he's not, he's, he said, I'd love to be involved with something having to do with this project, but I'm not a good video director. Like he had had this per perception of himself is that he had attempted to make videos and, and not done them well, um, which I immediately wanted to debunk with this, you know, I said, so I insisted he make it anyway, even if it was bad. I was <laughs> like, I, wa I want you to make the video. And, uh, and I just asked him to, to talk about visually the universality of loss, because that's really what the record is about, is connecting all of us um, around the subject of death and loss. It's something that culturally we don't speak very much about, and there's a lot of, um, you know, loneliness in, uh, when it comes to grieving. And, and, and a lot of times that's what we want you know, to, to not be around other people, but that it's important to speak about that for those that could use the support. So anyway, that was what he came back with, was this beautiful um, different close-ups of, of people from all over the world and different um, religious and, and cultural backgrounds, and I loved it. So that's, what that, that's how that came to be. And then with Lost in Motion, um, Catherine Keener is a friend of mine and was a, a very good friend of, of Rivers as well. And we were just at her house one night um, talking about the record. She really loved what she had heard. It wasn't out yet and we were talking about it. And I said, would you ever consider doing a video? And she and her son um, were thinking about doing videos. Basically, they were starting to like consider that. And her son was in the house um, and she asked him about it, and literally a half hour later, she had me in this white bathing suit and in the pool, and that was how that video came to be. Everything happened very in the moment, and you know, not a lot of fanfare, but a lot of love and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of good intention. And I just want to point out uh, that, that Gus Van Sant directed, of course, both your brother and you, uh, and even Cowgirls, Get the blues, um, and it's very uh, ironic that he doesn't think that he's a good video director because <laughs> it's such a beautiful video. Um, how does it feel, I guess, to trust someone to like interpret your vision, you know, visually? Well, I think it's easier when the person is someone that you've watched make incredible art. 
you know, I think it's a little bit more dangerous when you're just guessing someone might be good at something, and then how do you tell them you don't like it, or, right? So in, in this case, I, I was blessed to be asking people that had far, far greater experience in filmmaking and storytelling than I did. So I think when you surround yourself with people who are gifted, you're not as nervous about the outcome, you know? And certainly if you connect it, in my case, connecting it to this record, and to um, River's memory was, that was the main point that I shared with everyone involved artistically. So it just kind of levels the, you know, it become, everyone's resonating at the same frequency to use a sound metaphor about it. <laughs> so we know that this was Catherine's uh, video directing debut and you were also inspired to uh, direct a video and make your debut. Uh, as a director, um, but you had, I think, a very like DIY, low-tech approach. Would you talk a little bit about what your uh, video involved in terms of, yeah. you know, you didn't rent like a fancy studio or... James anything. is talking about, I, I made a video for Time is the Killer, a different version, a piano version, which uh, is on the record river. And, and I made that myself with an iPhone and an empty pool, and I used a trash can as my tripod, and I just pointed the iPhone down in this empty pool, and I put it in slow-mo mode, and I put on a crazy silver dress that Catherine had given me, and I just did an emotive dance in slow motion, and that is what became the video for Time is the Killer. At the time, I really shot it knowing it might be used for some video, but it wasn't even specific necessarily. And then I put that track to it, and it was it, it just matched up. It was one of those happy accidents. Is, you know, it sort of begs the question, is directing something that you would be interested in pursuing more? I mean, who knows? If I don't die tomorrow, there's all kinds of cool things I could maybe do. I love to, you know, I'm a multi-platform artist. I really don't identify uh, with one thing. And I've just, you know, at my age, finally accepted that and not had any sort of shame around it. Like, I should have pursued one thing and stuck to it. I realize that what feeds me creatively is, is what's nourishing. And sometimes it's music, and mostly it has been music, but sometimes it's acting. and. Some, a lot of times it's producing and, and highlighting other artists. That's something that I'm most fond of, um, is seeing how I can help other artists as well and uh, change culture. Ultimately, it's all for me about how, what are the things I'm doing. Is, is any of it helping to move the needle and does any of it connect to something deeper than just um, me expressing myself and people liking it or not? It's more like the wish to be of benefit, the wish to be a cause of alleviating some of the suffering in some small way. And I am not sure I've done that, but that aspiration has helped guide me to not judge myself anymore when I suddenly pivot from making music to doing a movie or doing something else and not really staying on one. You've been making music for over 30 years and yet this is your first solo album as a, you know, as a solo artist. Why did you, what do you think you waited so long to present yourself 
as, as a solo artist? It's scary. It's probably the first answer to be the honest, most honest answer. But I also don't feel that I ever had um, an urge to, I didn't have music that spoke to me wanting to share it as me as much as I was exploring music. For me, music came, uh, immediately showed up in my life next to my brother River. We played together constantly musically. And so that it was really my only introduction and, and my only journey with, with music was with him. So when he passed away, I think I was searching for how to keep doing what I obviously had an affinity for music and keep singing, but how to do that without my number one collaborator? Like how do you, you know, what that meant? And I think I explored, I, I experimented, I tried various different avenues, um, bands, productions. Um, and I do, to be honest, it just didn't make sense until this record and until I realized um, that I had to include him in order to have a solo career. That, that, that was the most important thing for me and for my own healing as a musician was that he had to be a part because he had always been a part. And so to sort of shut that out and say, I'm gonna make a solo thing and not include him would have actually been false to like who I am as a musician because it all kind of came from our time together. So I would say that's why I waited till now is it took me that long to realize that and I'm grateful for the journey and the many other things I had the opportunity to do on the way, but yeah. All, you know, your, your family is very musical. I was curious like what your earliest musical memory is. It seems like you grew up uh, with a love for music that was encouraged by your parents. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd say probably just singing at home, you know, like singing. River would play guitar and I would sing and we would sing through any number. And he wrote original songs as early as like five or six. He started writing. So and I was always like his like go to like, like this is the chorus. Go, <laughs> you know, like we we were a team. So that's probably my early, it was fun. It was, you know, the joyfulness of music at home. I just realized it sort of reminds me of the relationship that Billie Eilish and Phineas have as a brother-sister, you know, There's something first about siblings that's really special, I think, in any kind of artistic collaboration and in life in general, for all of you who have siblings, I'm sure you have experienced that too. Um, but yeah, with music, it, it creates a kind of shorthand. There's been a number of people who, you know, because my other siblings also are musicians, and we play, we still, you know, we play together or write songs together, which you just might not have heard of them, but we do that. And anyone who's collaborated with us or recorded us will be like, what just happened? What did you say? What you know, there's a whole shorthand that you don't have to say anything. You just kind of know what chord's coming next and what you're going to do, and it's... It's fun to be able to be that connected with someone that you grew up with and be able to create very effortlessly. And, and maybe that's not true all the time, but I was very blessed with the siblings I got because that's, that's been the case for me. I did want to go back to Even Cowgirls Get the Blues because that, that's a classic LGBTQ movie, a beloved film of Gus's and a huge sort of debut for you as a very young actress. 
but then you sort of didn't uh, make a career out of acting, and I just wondered if that was intentional or you just kind of... Um, I was very young. I had been acting since probably, I think I got my SAG card when I was about 10. I did an episode of Amazing Stories with Phil Joanu directing with John Lithgow, and <laughs> I think I was like 10. And I think, I know, right? So I always felt like I had some high, high pressure first experiences as an actor. And honestly, I don't think, uh, compared to music, it wasn't like, a, you know, an instant comfort zone. And for me too, um, I love film, and I love acting because of the collaborative aspect that there's, so many art forms involved in making a movie. Every single art form is represented, and I, so I love it in terms of that, like the, the producer part of me gets excited seeing all these artists working together to make something. Um, as an actor, the downtime, um, I'm somebody who likes to do and be really creative and watch it manifest instantaneously. And I think with acting, it's it's you know it might you might spend all day on one scene and go, where did that day go? I could have written two songs. I could have you know. So there was a part of me that it was based on that. Another was just the age that I was. And to be honest, um, it was it came out soon after my brother passed away, and there was just absolutely zero urge to be. Um, in the public eye or, uh, yeah, continue acting because that basically meant I'd be, you know, and I, I actually turned down so many opportunities and auditions just following it for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things when you sleep on that is certainly in, in act filmmaking and, you know, you, then you have to start all over again. And I never had this, like, dying urge to start all over again. I could have two years later, I could have, you know, I just didn't, what I did instead was when things come my way that I really f feel resonance with and someone says, I really want you to consider this part or will you, you know, if I like it, I'll do it. So I just kind of made for acting, it became something that when it's right and the right person comes forward and I feel that the project is really meaningful or I can re you know, resonate with it and I'd want to spend the time not writing a song or producing another event to spend all day on one scene, then I'll do it. And so it, I'm actually doing one, you know, coming up like that, so. And I just want to point out, you actually at that moment, in instead of doing another film, you went on a world tour with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. What? was that like and how did it i guess how did it open your eyes as as an artist you know did you do you feel like you learned anything absolutely from that? i that couldn't have happened at a better time um that was also so soon after my brother passed and flea was one of his best friends and music is you know has always been what's really fed my soul being able to sing like that's sort of such a release for me as an artist so for him to ask me to do that also to be a backup singer in a rock band that everybody knows they're all they all they care about is the rock band that they know they don't care about the two girls in the back on microphones helping the vocals sound a little better so I didn't have to be in the public eye and I was protected by all these rock rock dudes, do you know? So I think I felt really safe. I was 20, I think. I turned 21 on tour in Europe, and it was one of the most 
um, life-changing experiences for me as an artist because I had always done music, like I said, in, in a much smaller way. So to have that experience was the reason, I think, that I started pursuing music again, uh, you know, in other bands after that. It gave me the confidence I needed after River passed away to step out and make an effort without him. And I think, you know, th that was a huge part, a, a catalyst for me, feeling like I had the strength to do that. Um, so I'm super, still so grateful to, to Flea and to that band. It was a wild ride, I'm not gonna lie. Gratefully, I mean, they were all sober, so it wasn't like, it wasn't too crazy, but it was crazy enough. And, and I did, you know, we managed to do both the bus tour and the like jet tour. So I got to like experience the crew version and the rock star version, and it was really fun. You did have sort of like the old school tour bus experience. Yeah, I was thinking it was all private all jets. Amazing. Yeah, but it was no, it was I went with the crew the first the first leg and then I went with the band the second leg. So I got to experience both versions and I always loved the crew. I mean no offense to the band, but <laughs> we had a lot of fun. It's so fun to, to be in a bus all over Europe and hear all their inside jokes and you know, like learn how, what it's like to be a guy on the road. Because really there was three women on the entire tour, uh, the monitor woman and me, myself and my friend Acacia who sang with me. So it was really fun though. I'm sure there were no groupies uh, on that tour. Um, None I'm, that I saw. I'm curious, um, you know, growing up, what music were you exposed to? I'm curious like what music like your parents played around the house or did they not, and that's why you were encouraged to make your own music? Um, I'd say Carol King, James Taylor, Cat Stevens, Steely Dan, Michael Jackson, uh, the Jackson Five. Um, those were kind of the, the staples at my house, like my parents would play. Um, Steel Pulse, which is a reggae band. My dad loved that band. And so, yeah, a, a lot of uh, the Beatles, of course, that was all the time. Um, so I think I absorb, a lot of times I absorb music through others. I, as an artist, I don't really have, um, I have a record player and I have all kinds of music, but I tend to l listen vicariously through my relationships. And when I'm doing research or you know, I want to know about a band or I hear there's somebody really great that I, you know, I'll check it out. But I don't, I don't, unlike a lot of people and a lot of artists, I don't do the soundtrack to my life with music. I don't listen to I don't have to wake up and put on a record and be listening all day to some, uh, honestly, silence is the greatest thing for me to get work done. Otherwise, I, I'm too overwhelmed. I'll get stuck just wanting to listen and I won't do any work. So that's sort of, um, so I, yeah, I had a lot of influences, but you know, some of them were from my brother that, that I, you know, and, so, and a lot of them were male, like, David Byrne is a huge, in Talking Heads, David Bowie, The Beatles, those were, you know, Kate Bush was a really big influence, Laurie Anderson, Brian Eno, um, those were kind of the influences that I had as a teenager that I think did, you know, have something to do with the work that I do now. What inspired you and your brother to form Alaka's Addict when you were a teenager? Well, I'd say he, it was his band, his idea. I mean, uh, like we'd always been, it was just sort of like, you're deaf, you know, I was part of it. 
<laughs> so, but yeah, he always was passionate about music and acting took off first, but I would say that music was his constant. And uh, yeah, he was always in his room making four tracks and rehearsing, and that was something he was super passionate about. So I think as soon as he was able to, um, he was established enough to take some time and do what he was really excited to do, i.e. music, he wanted to start a band, and that's how Alec is Attic came to be. What are some of like, your fondest memories of those early performances as Alec is Addict? I mean, I think just being a teenager and being and and legitimately playing uh, rock venues, you know, and and um, getting to express myself creatively on a stage through an actual mic and not just at home, it it definitely helped me become and identify with that as like, oh, I guess I could do this as a career, or I get, you know, this could be something that's not just. Um, what we do at home to bring joy, you know, I could actually do this. Um, so it was fun. At the short answer, it was really fun to, to have a band and be that young and meet other artists and collaborate and travel. All of that was really fun. And I should mention, you recently decided to put out uh, some unreleased Alakazadic music, and would you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, a lot of fans, longtime fans of the band were very excited by that gift uh, on streaming services. Uh, would you talk a little bit about what inspired, you know, that decision? Well, I think I loved the idea. I'm very concept-driven, and I loved the idea of putting out a single, a double single, that was my first experience with music with River and my first solo song, um, Time is the Killer, in one package as a kind of um, container of memories and like a time capsule that spanned 25 years. That I, you know, I tend to create and not overthink it or think about what any of it means, but I think something happened right at the 25-year mark where I realized, wow, that's 25 years that you know I started playing music with him in Alexatic, and then uh, and that I want to put out this solo thing, and so the idea of creating this little time capsule of that whole 20, like that quarter of a century, in a sense. Um, was was what interested me about releasing those together. Also, to be honest, uh, I don't know if you saw the record cover, but it's a photo of him, uh, us embracing. Um, and I felt like it was my way of protecting him and his music was putting it out with one of mine so that I could oversee it and you know do it in a way that that I felt honored him and wasn't. Um, wasn't something that I would regret or feel uncomfortable, like I'd put this music out and there wasn't a lot of intention. So there was a lot of thought that went into that and a kind of protective, it was almost like a hug around Alaka's attic, like that I was holding that. Um, so that's really what, what, why. And then I, you know, for that release, and I'd released another song of his just prior, sort of just snuck it on the internet not within without fanfare and I really 
loved doing that for the fans. Like that made me so happy because it was just literally for the fans. Like I just put it out on an Alakazadic, you know, you can get it on iTunes and Spotify and, and they all found it and shared it and it just made my day. And so following that as was this time capsule piece, Time Gone, um, which is a combination of Time is the Killer and his song Where I'd Gone was the title of the single Time Gone. So it was all, all meant to sort of live together like that. Um, and I still plan to release more. You know, to be honest, River was an incredibly particular artist and when it came to his music, especially so. Um, uh, he wouldn't let any rough mixes be heard by anyone. You know, he was super, super, super detail-oriented. So it's it's honestly not felt like my place, even as his collaborator, to just put out his songs even though I know the fans, you know, I want to on behalf of the fans, but on behalf of him, I have to honor the way he was as an artist. So I have held back on that until I feel like it's right or I can be sure that at the very least, like every single detail I can think of was taken care of before I release it. Um, so that's, that's why I've been slow to do that. And I partially wonder, you know, it's, it's the ongoing battle of whether he would want it at all publicly out so that's been a lot of you know what i've had hesitancy with about releasing but his meat songs are great and his song right so of course i want to share it but i just have to follow the uh through line and make sure it feels right i'd like to talk about some of your earlier musical projects like paper cranes was a band uh that you formed uh and the concept was to incorporate rotating members which is so interesting what i guess gave you the idea for that concept i mean i don't i wish i could say that i was super studied about all my decisions but I, you know i follow sort of the muse for lack of a better way of saying it and i'm really a fan of stream of consciousness writing stream of consciousness creative projects producing what comes you know Another way to speak about it is interdependence or, you know, no single one of us uh, exists without the help and the connection to others. So, so every idea or thing that I'm doing is usually, it's like a domino effect that happens. And in regard to Paper Cranes, um, that was really my first expression. I was mixing uh, Alaka's Attic after we passed away and I, thought I might put it out, but I, for all the reasons I cited before, I decided to hold on releasing it. And in the process of mixing it, I was working with this really amazing engineer, Michael Perfit, who still, uh, he works in music, he does a lot of scoring um, here in LA. And we started making these demos um, with Michael Tubbs in LA in between mixes, um, and that became Paper Cranes, that was the early so it was already a collaborative idea in the studio, and then I thought to do it live, I bounce around so much for different locations that honestly that rotating thing was 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 also just, um, what city am I in? Who can I get to play these songs with me for a show? And I would get them involved, and we would rehearse, and we would play a show. So um, it wasn't super thought out. It was, you know, and honestly, I'm not, I'm, uh, I would be remiss to say that it was a great idea because, you know, to not have a solid group of players that really 
grow together and write songs together and then perform them together over a long period of time, that actually does help the music grow. And so in a lot of ways, it you know what I mean? I felt like sometimes it was spinning my wheels where it would be an amazing experience to play the shows, but then you kind of start from square one when you move to another city and you got to get all new musicians. And so, so it was a fun experiment. I thought Paper Cranes was a, and a great way for me to figure out how to, to songwrite without River because he'd done most of the songwriting and I would join in a little, but this was me really doing a lot of the songwriting for the first time and just trying to figure out what I wanted to say, you know, just let what I wanted to say come out through prose. That was something I hadn't done. So that, in many ways, Paper Cranes was an experiment for me as an artist just to try to come into my own, yeah. That was basically the start of you finding yeah. your voice as an artist. Yeah. Right. And then I'd love for you to talk about Citizens Band, which is such an interesting concept, uh, a political cabaret act unlike anything uh, I can think of. And it went on for about a decade and incorporated elements of performance art and a lot of guest collaborators, but you were sort of a core of that from the very beginning. And I guess I wanted to ask you about your involvement and you know, how you uh, took that project and incorporated your own vision into it. Yeah, well, for a short time, I lived in the same building as Sarah Sophie Flicker, who was the founding founder of the Citizens Band. And we were neighbors. And she asked me if I'd be interested in performing this political cabaret that she wanted to start called, and I don't even know if it had a name on our first show. And it was at this warehouse in Brooklyn, and she said, you know, we're going to have fake blood, you're going to have to crunch in your mouth and bleed, we're all going to have this, like, what was that called, the, the thing that everyone would get in the 20s and 30s, it was like a cough that would then you'd bleed, I forget, what it was, there's a term for it, but we, the, so yes, we all had consumption, thank you, um, you know, died of consumption at the end of the performance, so it was, that was the most direction I got for the first one, um, and my dear friends Angela McCluskey, who's an incredible singer-songwriter, and her husband Paul Cantillon also were in that building and living um, actually in the same apartment with her, so we were all part of that first show. Uh, she did trapeze and dance, and, and it, but it was really a minimalist show, like we did you know, five songs, and it, the, she was right. It just ended in all of us with blood coming out of our mouths, and there was no, it wasn't like a scripted thing, which which it did grow into um, a really well produced, uh, multi platform, multi, like thirty plus artists and orchestra. You know, we uh, dance trapeze, so many artistic expressions, set design, costume design. So many artists were involved. Um, and it was really, it was really, really moving to be a part of because of the subject matter we were talking about and the songs that we were doing from the 1920s and 30s that had s correlated so, um, so well with modern times. It was wild, the songs she would choose and that we'd all choose um, really matched up 
uh, and at the time it was when it was the Bush administration, I think, and there was the war in Iraq and there was oil, there was all kinds of issues. So we basically, the idea was to bring song and dance and joyfulness and costuming and you know, beauty to subject matter that was really difficult to talk about and painful to, um, painful to witness that was playing out on the world stage and in the news. And so it was like a little pocket of relief, but it was still very much speaking to um, those things that we all were struggling with um, culturally and yeah, on the world stage. So in that respect, it, it was very meaningful and fun, you know, I got to tap dance, I wrote songs, I, I always played the, the um, uh, fortune teller, or, you know, I always played the marginalized person in the cast. Uh, I think because I'm, you know, more ethnic than most of the people that were in the cast at the time. <laughs> Uh, which I was so proud of and grateful for, but I got to write about my heritage and my Russian heritage and, um, and you know, research through my great uncle Bernie, who's like 90 now, um, the story of, you know, his parents in Russia. And so I wrote a whole song devoted to that and it was about immigration and immigrating. Um, and at that time that was a big issue. Now imagine how much bigger it's become now. But so all these things, it just spoke very much to what I believe in as an artist, which is there's really no point in, um, you know, just doing it for the sake of doing it. For, in my case, I think everybody's different, but it has to have some meaning and something deeper. I have to connect it to something that we all struggle with so that I can in, enjoy it or so that I can feel like what I'm doing makes any kind of, or lasting effect and, and honestly it's not so much about what I'm doing as the wish that if I'm going to put out energy that somehow it's going to alleviate some some questions or suffering or confusion that that's what I aspire to I'm not sure I've ever actually done that but that's the aspiration I go into things with so the citizens band satisfied that for me because of the subjects that we were talking about and then I'd like to talk about Venus and the Moon, which is this sort of trippy country act that you did. And uh, I really love the song, Marry Me, because it's probably a song that people literally play at their weddings. And yet, if you listen to the, the lyrics, uh, they're not very romantic. <laughs> but it just proves that oftentimes people don't listen to the lyrics. Uh, and it reminded me so much of... R.E.M.'s hit to the one I love because I remember people used to request that song and dedicate it to their boyfriend or their girlfriend, not realizing that it was actually, again, not a very romantic song at all. Uh, and I, I just wondered, you know, what inspired, I guess, you to, to write that song in particular? Well, I felt like it was a romantic, but it was rom it was rom it was romantic about nature and and you know our nature to be free um it's it did have that lyric at the beginning that specified you know 
the very opposite of marriage, which was sort of that idea that you couldn't marry one person and be happy. Because you can't, what is it, something about like promise to just one man, oh, give your hand to one man, yeah. So I see what you mean in terms of that. But, but in terms of the relationship with nature, I thought it was really a love song to nature. It was the idea that like, regardless of all the relationships we go through and all the pain and suffering, you know, where maybe things don't work out in romance, you know, the, the song of the wind and the trees and the way that, you know, the grass feels when you walk in a barefoot, that's, that's what I'm married to. That was, that was sort of the sentiment. But, uh, but I have, you're right, I have, I have gotten some people writing in saying like, thank you, I played that at my wedding. You know? And I was like, oh, don't, I hope your husband doesn't know that. Or it doesn't sound, it's not very, it doesn't seem like you're gonna last. But, but, but I, I, but at the same time, like maybe they just, I hope they never hear that and they get whatever they want out of it. Right. It should be interpreted by how, you know, however you want to interpret it. Would you talk a little bit about your creative process as a songwriter, like how the lyrics and the melodies come to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I for me, it's melody that other people um, often bring, in this case for River, my collaborator, Kirk Kelly. Um, would bring musical composition and that would prompt me to write to it and I usually just put her mic up and I press record I have a little Pro Tools um, home where it's just one mic into my laptop and I have it always set up so if, if something inspires me I can and I it's easiest for me if I just have it there and I because if I hear a melody and I start to come up with you know, a counter melody, vocal melody, lyrics will come right away too. And so if I just record it, there's a better chance that the song will be captured, that first version will will make it into the final version. And for me, if I overthink things or say, oh, that, you know, it's it doesn't work for me that way. I, it's strange, I've talked to so many other artists and everyone's process is different, but for me, uh, the more off the cuff, the more stream of consciousness that, and the less affectation or concern about what other people might think or what, you know, or what I might think if I thought, it, you know, I, I, re I interpret my songs later. I write them in the moment and then I understand what they mean usually sometimes as far away as, you know, between three and six months later I realize what I wrote the song about. Um, once in a while there is like a burning thing I have to get out specifically and I will write a song with that motivation, you know, with just need to get this, this out. Um, and I think... I don't know if it's true, I'm guessing for other artists, but all musical expression for me and all artistic expression is a way to interpret and transform, you know, feelings that sometimes just language or talking about doesn't do. Something music has this transformative and, and therapeutic way of, of transmuting my feelings into song and that helps me and my wish is always that it helps others too and that's why I try my best not to. Like right now I'm feeling bad for telling you that Marry Me was a love song to nature because I just, that that's my personal, that's not your takeaway and, I, and it's so important to me that everyone has their own takeaway. It's not about me, it's, it's about like did it move you then and I'm curious like I would be so curious what your interpretation was that that's what I get excited about because 
you know, I think it's, for, personally, I just don't like to share too much about like what the song means to me. I'd like to see how it moves others. And I want to point out when when uh, this when you started this album, it was originally just the idea was to go into the studio, maybe make an EP, and it slowly evolved uh, into you know its its current form. And would you talk sort of about the moment when you realized it was going to be uh, a tribute album of of sorts? and how that realization came to you? Yeah, gosh, I don't remember exactly how. It was uh, similar to songwriting, and like I said, I'm not very methodical and detail-oriented. Um, I just started making music. Kirk and I started writing together after Time Gone, that piece that just kind of, we got inspired, so we kept going, and we thought, well, let's just keep going. Let's keep making music. We don't know what it is. And I guess probably halfway through, I just had this overwhelming realization that I had to call the record River and I had to include him in it. And from that moment forward, the record finished itself. It was like, then I knew what the record was. Like, I am concept driven, but I'm not detail oriented. So for me, as soon as I understand why I'm doing something, everything moves out of the, every obstacle goes away and I just finish the project. But if I don't have that certainty of what, you know, I'm just gonna keep, I'm just gonna let myself create and I don't know what it means. And so that, that moment was very pivotal because once I knew what it meant, what I was doing, you know, um, I could finish it and it was effortless. It just, every, like, I think we finished, two more songs came out of it that weren't expected. Like you said, it was gonna be an EP, and then, and those, you know, just were so meant to be, one of which was a song that he wrote the lyrics to, that I repurposed lyrics of his, from Alec, his attic, and um, the title, Lost in Motion, which I think you all saw the video to, and that came about organically, you know, after I sort of realized I was gonna call the record that, I wasn't even gonna use, I wasn't sure I could write to this music. It was so beautiful and haunting, but it seemed like it was a film score. I couldn't imagine putting vocals to it. And then one day, weirdly, his lyrics started humming in my head to it, and I got the mic, and I did what I always do, and that became Lost in Motion. And So uh, it was nothing like his original melody, but a, a lot of the lyrics remain, and yeah. So for me, that's just how I really enjoy creating when I don't overthink, you know, it just has to feel right. And I have to have the space and the time and the microphone set, you know, there's certain things you need to prepare for that creative expression, but that's about as far into premeditation I go. Everything else just kind of falls out. It, it, for me, that's just, it feels the most authentic. I know that I can't be making things up if I just let it happen, do you know what I mean? And I think I'm always impressed with people who conceptualize and then they know exactly how they're gonna, how it's gonna play out, and you know who they're gonna bring in, and how, you know, and 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 I I don't ha I don't do it that way. I don't know. It might be that I'm lazy. I'm not. It's not definitely. Seriously, I think it might just be that I'm lazy. It's it's so interesting because I love the lyric about the words that your father left me, and I was convinced 
that you had written that lyric, and as it turns out, River had written that lyric. And I just think it's so beautiful that you literally co-wrote a song with him on this album. You literally incorporated him uh, as a songwriter on this album, and it also addresses uh, your father. And uh, so that was all just kind of... Yeah, that's interesting. You're right, and you're the one who brought that up to me, which I was... This was the first time I really thought about it. But the way that I, yeah, the intonation on that line is what does make me think about losing a parent, like them passing away, which my father passed away in 2015. And and yet when he wrote it, you know, it was more meant to be like, these were the words my father left me. Like, um, you know, this is what he taught me. But it, I, never, I never thought of it as a loss related until the way that we put it in this song and you brought it up. Otherwise, I always thought of it the way, you know, I never, th I never thought that the lyric meant that the father was no longer with us until you interpreted it that way. <laughs> but it was very poignant and, and, and made it mean more to me. So I thank you for sharing your interpretation. You see, it matters when I other think, people interpret. <laughs> I think that's what's beautiful about this album is even though it's so deeply personal, you managed to make all of these songs address universal themes of of loss and grief and and all types of loss. Also, the end of a relationship, which can often be catastrophic. Um, and I wonder why do you think? Like I was trying to compare this to another album, but there really aren't a lot of albums that deal with with loss, and yet it's such a universal experience where all going to die, why do you feel like there's such a, I guess, so much cultural anxiety about that topic? And I guess, were you worried at all that it might hurt album sales? <laughs> like, that probably doesn't occur to you. Like, There are no album sales anymore. Right. It's a streaming sale. <laughs> doesn't matter, that part. Um, no, I mean, I think, I really don't have the answer as to why. I, I will say that through the process of making this record, I began to research and explore more, you know, why we're not a death positive culture, why we don't talk about um, loss more, why we, don't, why we don't provide more support for those who need it, um, and why we don't provide more time off when people lose their loved ones at work, you know, like, how people have to just suit up, and, and my experience from grief, and certainly my father being the most recent loss, is it just that everything falls away, nothing matters, uh, nothing matters, but your connection with this person and their, them being gone and you not being able to physically see them or talk to them again, um, that's so devastating that the idea that like we have to suit up and go into an office soon after those experiences as opposed to nurture that you know part of us or nourish that part of us that is devastated and and have the space to do that it just you know it broke it breaks my heart it broke my heart at, to think about that and to and so i think this record for me was a, a way to to offer a, a, a little eight songs worth of a space to do that in, <laughs> you know, a kind of um, a totem to all those that everyone has lost and, and to bring in and remember the people that meant a lot to each of us that are no longer here. And 
I was so blessed to have a producer and co-writer in Kirk who contextualized that those emotions through uh, string arrangements and you know horn arrangements like, to actually have a record that was scored you know I'd never had that experience being in indie bands and you know like where things like the musicians came in and they it was written he wrote the parts that they played they weren't just riffing and I picked what I liked and cut it into my song which was my experience in with you know being a child of Pro Tools uh, era music and and um, yeah just not having that a producer like that like he, he really you know we really communicated much like super closely on that on the core heart space of the record you know and then I just felt like I was in good hands and there was like he was able to translate so much of like the heartache of loss through the compositions um, which afforded me the opportunity to actually just focus on singing and you know having and songwriting the lyric writing and letting that be all I really had to worry about which was a first for me in previous um, projects I was involved in every last aspect and it can be so overwhelming to do so much that I think you know the lyrics and the and the vocals at times suffered comparatively like I feel so um, like I had the time this time to really sit in these feelings and think of others experiencing that and try to translate that through my voice and through the lyrics and knowing that the music was being taken care of in such a beautiful way. So yes, I probably went off tangent and started trying to interpret it through a musical lens because that's what I like to do, but in terms of loss, it isn't a prevalent thing and people aren't making a lot of records about that and it's not something that is celebrated, but it's what I'm interested, I've always kind of, just pick a subject or a concept and I go with that and to me that's what this record is about and so when I play live performances I had you know the great fortune to tour with Pete Yorn before the holidays and just it's very different from the Red Hot Chili Peppers very, probably. very <laughs> right. but that whole experience and Kirk came along and we just did it as a duo to, to actually you know meet and play for crowds that didn't know what to expect, maybe we're coming for Pete, and to talk about loss and to feel the, the energy in the room um, co-mingle around like that shared part that we all just don't talk about um, was really profound for me as a performer, and it only emboldened me to continue to tell that story through this record and to travel with it and to tour with it and to play live shows because I think it's something that, you know, we all connect with, but we it's its that thing that just gets shelved away. We don't talk about it too much. So um, there's a lightness that comes from talking about it after, like the joyfulness and the people that came up and, and shared stories. It changed performance for me to have it connect to this very universal truth. Um, and it just goes along with what I, what I was saying before about art for me, it has to do that. Something about it has to connect to something deeper. Otherwise, you know, it just feels like a waste of time. Life is so short, and I, as it is, I don't think I have that much longer here. I don't know. We all don't, right? Or we, who knows? Could be tomorrow, could be 50 years. I might live to 100. I don't know. But 
the point is like if if I'm not thinking about what am I doing and is it something that's creating more joy or helping I just am interested in helping and so I try to make my art do that too and I'm so grateful that this record has already you know begun to resonate with people and certainly those who have experienced great loss my, the, my last question I, I know this album for me has been very healing was the, the, the process of writing it and then eventually you know touring with it was that cathartic and healing for you as well and and ultimately did this change your view on on death wow that's a great question honorable mention to you james herman for for really you've done your research too i was like how'd you know that um did this yes absolutely this is incredibly, I didn't know what I was in for, you know? I just knew I had to do it. That's all I knew when I decided to call it River and make this record and put it out was that it just, came, it was like, you must do this. Something was like pushing me. And everything that's come out as a, as a, after that initial, you know, understanding or allowing, I should say, it wasn't really a pushing as much as like just allowing that to, to bubble up and, and, be my expression um, and honoring of my brother. Everything that's come from it has been, for me personally, a, a healing experience and, and one that has connected me more deeply with others and that has connected me to music more intimately um, and with my brother again in many ways that has really connected me to that like part of him that it will always be here for me, you know, that musical connection. It just woke all of that up and I, and so the answer is yes, it absolutely had a, a transformative effect and I'm, I'm at, the, at the very least, if that's all that this record does, well, I'm super grateful for that. I think that's the most music can do. It's it's Grammy week in LA, and I'm. This was one of my favorite albums, as you know, of last year, and I'm so flattered you. that you took the time to come and uh, talk about your work, even though you're very humble. And uh, I know it's not your favorite thing to do, but I really appreciate you giving us some insight into this beautiful album, and I can't wait to see and hear what you do next. Thank you so much, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAGAFTERFound. We'd love to hear from you.